Well, welcome back to Particularly Baptist. This is Pastor Steve Meister, and you are? I'm Pastor Robert Briggs, and we are together again doing our podcast, Steve. It's been a while. It has. Life has been rather hectic, shall we say, and busy moving through COVID and whatever else it was. You know, pastoral ministry in California takes away from the old podcast time. It does. And you know what? That's not a bad thing, brother, to be honest. No, uh, we're, we're very grateful. We're pastors of Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Sacramento, California. Thankful for the ministry the Lord has given us amongst our dear church, whom I couldn't be more thankful for even after the last couple of years in God's grace evident among us. And also the opportunities we have here in the capital of a very blue state, but uh, the Spirit of God is working. There's opportunities of evangelism. Even if we just shared and prayed last night at prayer meeting, I'm so excited by how many opportunities our congregation, individuals, and groups of it is ha- are having with uh, the ability to minister the gospel in our community. Yeah, I, I think that we're very blessed. Our people have been wonderful through COVID. They've been willing to follow our leadership, and even when there's been questions, they've had a gracious and humble spirit to talk it through with us. And we had the joy of being outdoors for over nearly seven months by the grace of God, and the Lord has enabled us to maintain a real spirit of unity in the bond of peace. And uh, even now we're anticipating another 10, 12, 14, I'm not sure how many members coming in, some baptisms coming up. So isn't it wonderful the Lord is building His church in the heart of this state that everybody seems to think we should leave? Yeah. But we ain't leaving. No, no, the weather's too good. By I'm the grace nowhere. of God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know what, brother? We, we know that the gospel is, you know, powerful. It can change people's hearts, and it's changed our hearts, and our people are committed to the gospel. We know some people have to leave, and we understand that, but we're really committed to staying here and building and serving the Lord, and uh, it's sunny too most of the time, which helps. It does. Especially a Scotsman who lived under the gray skies for 36 years. That's right. <laughs> so I'm happy to be here, Steve. But we have not resuscitated particularly Baptist for California or for COVID, thankfully. I'm done talking about that. Yeah, I am too. Uh, We want to talk about confessionalism and particularly our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, uh, so-called of 1689, although it was written in 1677. So why are we doing that? Well, I think that, you know, obviously we are first and foremost pastors of our local church and we're committed to our local church, um, to our people. Our people are growing in the Lord. Um, They're also aware of various trends, maybe we could call them that, or uh, winds that are blowing in different ways. So they're asking us questions at times about these things. And uh, just because we know that our people get a chance to listen to us in their cars, driving in and out of the city or whatever, they get a chance to hear our dulcet tones in a different way than they do when we're preaching to them. Um, and also the conversations that we have, the iron sharpening iron as we have this as elders wrestling with, how do we communicate to our people uh, what we think is important regarding these winds, these trends, these things that are blown around out there. Um, and so our goal in resurrecting particularly Baptist is to help our people grow in the Lord and navigate the landscape, as it were, of the, the wider church. Right. So our, our podcast is, uh, in this episode, is largely critical and that we have some critiques to make and some clarifications but it's important to say at the outset our overall motive is constructive and for our church uh, primarily Um, there are many things that are said and written in the wider christian world uh, even internationally that we never touch because it doesn't touch us and it doesn't touch uh, the 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 saints that have been allotted to our charge to shepherd but when things do uh, we do have to address that to bring clarity and to be to bring help primarily for our church, but also for uh, other churches that are within either informal or formal association with us that subscribe to the same principles and particularly our confession as we do. Um, And so it's important to say that at the outset, our goal primarily, even though we'll have to talk about some people, uh, our goal is about principles. It's about clarifying what we confess according to scripture and, and dealing with some straw men and some sloppy statements and, and, and concerns that have been expressed uh, that need to b- 
be clarified and, and further articulated by us. And I'm referring to an article uh, that came out a couple weeks ago now from our brother Sam Waldron, Do We Still Believe in Sola Scriptura? And that was posted on the website for Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, you, just, you know Sam personally. I've not had the privilege of meeting him as of yet, but I know some dear brothers connected with Covenant Baptist. We're thankful for them. Overall, you would say we're, we're appreciative of their work. Yeah, I, uh, I've had the blessing. I've known Sam uh, for over th- for 30 years. I actually met him, believe it or not, on my honeymoon in 1992 in Grand Rapids. <laughs> and, uh, Who I goes had, on a honeymoon in Grand Rapids? Yeah, well, that's a whole other story for another time. <laughs> um, and obviously, I had known of Sam because in 1989, he had, had published with Evangelical Press the uh, Modern Exposition of the 1689, the first edition. And that 1989 for me was the year I started seminary. So, in the goodness of God, uh, Sam's book fell into my hands uh, at the Irish Baptist College in Belfast. And we had a 1689 club, believe it or not, that I used to chair there. And really what it was was a bunch of guys who'd found the 1689 confession and went, wow, what is this? And Sam helped us with his book to start wrestling at a deeper level. And uh, we had many a good argument at seminary about whether we believed what the 1689 confession taught. Um, and so I, I owe a great debt to Sam um, in many ways as a young man. I was 22 at the time, uh, going back now. And uh, I've known Sam. I know his wife. I know his family. I've even coached his girls' soccer team when he had his Achilles tendon problem in <laughs> Grand Rapids many years later. So I have a great love for Sam. I sat on the board of MCTS for a few years uh, with men like Tom Askell and uh, Fred Malone and Rich Porcellus. These brothers are, you know, I, I esteem them all as my brothers in the Lord. And my uh, Sam's, in a sense, a bit like a father in Israel in some regards. Sure. So, you know, we, we obviously uh, come to a, a discussion like this. I come to it with a a great measure of respect for my brother, but I did find his article rather curious and a, a little bit uh, odd for Sam to have written this. And so, you know, if he does listen to this, I don't know if he'll ever worry about what I'm saying, but uh, I do hope he can consider some of the things we're going to talk about today. Yes, and, th- and that's important to lay out that we are bringing brotherly concerns from someone we esteem and appreciate. And, and I have a similar story in terms of when I was moving into understanding the Second London Confession, Sam's book, the third edition, was the, the first thing I had gotten substantively and read and appreciated, appreciative of it. Although in 1989, when he published his first edition, I was 10. And so <laughs> we might as well get that out of the way now for uh, everyone who would like to bring that up. But it is important that we uh, actually don't establish orthodox principles on the basis of how many times someone's gone around the sun. And well, yeah, I think it's important to be, even to clarify, you know, those of us who are a little bit older need to be appreciative of the younger men who are coming up who are, well, you know, you're much sharper than I am in a number of ways. I'm blessed God uh, that I have a, a, a brother. And you're not a, you're not a spring chicken. You've been in ministry for nearly 20 years. But the reality is that we need to give, you know, uh, opportunity for younger men with sharper minds and, and greater clarity to be coming through. That's my heart. That You know that. That's my sure. philosophy of ministry here at IBC. We have a lot of younger men that we're given opportunity to. I think part of that was that I was pastored that way when I was younger. I had a great pastor who gave me a chance when I was really young, um, for better or for worse. Right. But uh, So, yeah, absolutely. The, the issue of your age should not be coming into this. I think that's just unacceptable, quite frankly. Yes, I agree. And and we have the same philosophy, as you mentioned, just with younger guys that are in their, their 20s, even in their 30s, that we give various opportunities in the church. And that's we we love to see the baton being carried past us. Right. And, and that's what the Lord's called that's us to. Critical. Well, let's talk about uh, this article. And, and maybe you want to start with, you, you described it as odd and uh, problematic. I would certainly agree. Um, there's some, what I, concerning uh, conflict of categories and even some what we believe misrepresentation in this article. So how, how, what, what point should we start with here? Well, I think, I think, you know, Sam's concern, his thesis generally speaking is, you know, he's asking the question, you know, do we be- still believe in solar scriptura? That's clearly coming from somewhere. He's obviously thinking about some things and he, he articulates, you know, concerns um, I'm not persuaded that, quite frankly, just full disclosure at the start, that his concerns actually established the concern. Uh, right. I actually don't think that those concerns are, are really uh, substantive enough to actually 
have this question put on the table. Sam obviously does, so obviously he, he, he can speak for himself. But when I'm reading the article, I'm thinking, wait a minute, okay, uh, why did Sam write this? What is it that Sam's saying here? Because when you actually go through the concerns, they seem to me to be red herrings to some extent. They seem to yeah. me to be uh, not substantiated. An actual fact, as we found out, and we've had conversations with different brothers, even some of the sources that Sam uses here are, are not really uh, well uh, articulated. And actually, I would have to say, I don't like saying this, but I have to say it, uh, they misrepresent the guys that actually wrote the material that he's quoting. And so yeah. from a purely scholarly perspective, and I, who am I to tell Dr. Waldron, you know, I'm thankful for my own studies in recent years that have helped me, but I, I don't think scholarly-wise this was really a well thought through article and when you actually hear what we're going to say about the misrepresentations I think it will become obvious yes I would agree I think uh, the with all due respect the to to Sam and his historic um, and established uh, contribution to our tradition and movement this is a very uh, poor uh, and unfortunate showing here uh, a lot of con as I said conflation of categories misrepresentation some straw men and just simply some um, sophomoric statements that really uh, and we don't know the intention behind it we, I don't want to ascribe any motives that I don't know scripture would call me to as much in love uh, and also we don't know uh, who else was involved with the writing of this and whether just things were missed in editing that happens right. um, and so we want to be right. um, generous in terms of what the motives are but but it was a very unfortunate article yeah, and I think that, you know, a general thrust I would have would be, it, it seemed to me that, uh, and we know this has been going on um, in different areas, there seems to be this growing terror of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and it seems that that has driven this article, not full-blown, but it's there at one of the last points that, that Sam actually brings up. And I think that, you know, uh, you and I sit under each other's preaching. You know, our people know nothing about Thomas Aquinas, it would be fair to say. We don't talk about Thomas Aquinas at IBC, uh, we, but we recognise his place in church history. Um, and I think that, you know, it seems to me among some of our Reformed Baptist brothers, Thomas Aquinas has suddenly been brought out as the bogeyman. And uh, I'm trying to understand that personally. Uh, you know, I, I lived in Northern Ireland for 14 years. I have very strong Protestant <laughs> proclivities. Maybe not, you know. Northern but but, 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 we, but we know, just the reality of historical theology, it seems that maybe behind it that was a, a major issue. We'll deal with that as we move forward. But I think that the general thrust for me is that Sam asks the question, do we still believe in Sola Scriptura because he's got concerns? But the concerns he raises, I would say, don't worry about it, Sam. We're not in any way departing from Sola Scriptura. And maybe that's good to say at the outset. We still very much believe in Sola Scriptura as originally understood and defined coming out of the Reformation. And it's important that we uh, clarify or distinguish Sola Scriptura truly stated from the more modern libertarian um, American um, anti-intellectual uh, tradition that would understand sola scriptura to be sometimes it's been described as solo scriptura or nuda scriptura right. that is scripture alone um, in the sense of um, scripture functions itself barely as the only uh, source of my understanding of uh, theology and that I have seen no place for the input of other teachers and prior tradition. And essentially goes under the label, I prefer the label Biblicism. Um, now, Biblicism is in, can inject a whole other level of difficulty because it's been used positively in ways we would agree with. That is, Scripture is our only sufficient rule of faith and the only authoritative and final revelation directly from God. Um, but there's also a Biblicism that discounts the teachings and the teachers that the Lord has given to us and that um, we are to use in understanding and that we use and imbibe. Uh, it, it's intuitive. It's all around us. None of us um, comes to the Bible in a complete intellectual vacuum. Uh, we use words like the obvious Trinity and others that we did not conceive of in our quiet time last Wednesday. Um, that comes down to us, and they're frameworks that the church has hammered out on the anvil of controversy and instruction uh, to give us ways to articulate and describe the logical coherence of what we see in Scripture. And to be very clear, any 
any framework, any tradition, to use that, that word, uh, any um, prior theology must be chastened and submitted to the only authoritative rule of faith, which is Scripture. Um, but we don't discount them or separate those as though they have no place together in the church. And we all believe that. We're preachers. We get up in the pulpit. Uh, we are using our words to describe, hopefully faithfully uh, and clearly, uh, what Scripture means by what it says. And in essence, uh, confession, a creed, um, the writings of another uh, theologian uh, function in the same way. Yeah, I think I think what's baffling to me about Sam's article, just again, historical stuff that is important to maybe understand about my journey and the, and the things of God. You know, I uh, was in an Irish Baptist church for three and a half years. It had no constitution. It had no confession. That's what I, I went into that right out of seminary. I myself had embraced the 1689 Confession as my confessional standard when I was at seminary. In part, my first year, Sam, in his book, had led me that way, right? Um, then when we, when that when that church blew up, when I brought in the 1689 Confession and it blew up and I resigned and I, I, I planted a Reformed Baptist church, um, I used Sam Walden's material, his historical theology class, I... I, I understand historical theology more. I've always loved historical theology. That's why I'm, I'm doing my THM on that right now. Um, I actually thought that I was confessional when I understood confessionalism. I came to America and IBC, and it was a confessional church on paper, but I, had, I, I bumped up against this, well, you know, sola scriptura, not the confession. I was already in a context of, wait a wee minute, I'm confused here. I thought Reformed Baptists were confessional. I thought I was confessional. I thought this is how you use the confession. Um, and now I'm reading this article and I'm thinking, I don't understand why Sam has got this concern if we understand sola scriptura, historically speaking, and we're not redefining it as what strikes me as nuda scriptura. Um, and that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I find this a very perplexing article because I feel there's confusion of categories, uh, there's a lack of clarity, there's maybe even, you know, just misrepresentation of what some of the guys that we're going to mention here in a minute actually said. I don't know of any Reformed Baptists who understand the confession historically accurately who are even getting close to denying Sola Scriptura. No, I've yet to come up on anyone in conversation personally or publicly and writing uh, again personally or 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 publicly that gives me any hint that we would abandon chapter one of our confession. Well, the minute you do that, the confession's over. It's done. What we mean by sola scriptura is articulated in chapter one, right. and it's odd that those of us who are uh, wanting to hold to the original intention of that chapter are somehow being aspersions are being thrown that we're questioning sola scriptura <laughs> when no i want to take chapter one uh, all through chapter two very seriously right. and sola scriptura is defined there and that becomes uh, i think a wider problem just in christianity in general when we and we'll talk a little bit about this as well when we get to semper reformanda when we take slogans separated from definitions they really become sort of bumper sticker theology that does all sorts of damage and wreaks all sorts of havoc within christian communion well, I think that's the point, Steve, that right at the very, right out the gate, right, Sam shows his first concern here, right, and he, and he, and he says, you know, uh, semper, semper reformanda uh, is a concern, do we not believe in it? And, and, and yet the, the, the peculiarity about this is he quotes uh, Dr. Godfrey, you know, who we esteem as a, a tremendous reformed church historian, the article that he had written in the table talk. He quotes Bob Godfrey, he puts it in its historical context, uh, you know, and even though it wasn't, a, and Bob Godfrey makes this clear, it wasn't a, a slogan back in the, the Reformation, right? But Sam recognises it, kind of nods towards Bob Godfrey and then says, but I don't want to define it that way, I want to define it this way. Right. And I'm like, wait a wee minute, this is not how to do history, this is not how to do theology, Sam. Surely you can't just change the meaning of something, import it, and then make it what you want it to be uh, in such a manner as to really argue the opposite. He actually argues the opposite, right? That we can now, Bob Godfrey argues that there's doctrines that are settled by the church and we need, to, we need to uphold them and keep our heart towards them because we drift. We would all recognize that if the truth right. be told, right? right? 
But Sam then says, no, I'm concerned that this means we can't change our doctrine. Um, we need to be thinking about, you know, being willing to change our confessions. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a wee minute. That's the very opposite of what the original phrase meant back in the days that Godfrey was... And, and we would not do that with the American Constitution. Or we would be... Well, conservatives would definitely not do that with the Constitution. Why are we doing this with phrases from the past? Why are we revising uh, phrases from the past to give it import for actually an argument that Sam goes on later to, to me to come across very contradictory um, in the sense that I'm thankful at the end Sam says, you know, I don't want to change the doctrine of God. Or which I'm thinking, well, what do you want to change and why are we having this discussion? Right. That doesn't make sense. That's where the confusion gets injected. And I think it's helpful. Now, we could do just a whole episode on the, the use and history of Semper Reformanda. It's important to note it is not a, a slogan, motto, or phrase that has any real historic credence right. at all. There are, you can look at, there's a table talk by Bluganeer published a good issue on Semper Reformanda in November of 2014 that's still available online and I would point people to the contributions by Carl Truman and R. Scott Clark. Uh, David Sitzma has done uh, excellent work even on Twitter and if you're not following him on Twitter you should be. He does wonderful threads pointing to historic sources um, and he will point to and most everybody would point to an article by Michael Bush that has done some scholarly work on this phrase and at the end of the day just cutting to the chase we really owe Semper Reformanda Reformanda to Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth, to in short, was not a Reformed Baptist. <laughs> uh, he is not friendly to our principles. I'm not even sure he was a Christian, Steve, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that on, on, <laughs> on, on the table for now. Suffice to say, Karl Barth was not one of us, um, and he is not somebody, he's probably one of the most overrated theologians in modern church history, and he certainly is not contributing to our cause. And what we have here is he injected, he and men like Bruner injected that phrase for their theological project, which right. is definitely not ours, and nor do we want to be associated with in any way. Uh, Richard Muller uh, brings this up in his Dictionary of Greek and Latin Theological Terms, where he talks about Semper Reformanda has no real historic precedence into the Reformation. It was not a six sola or anything like that. And it's been taken up in the modern era, in the 20th century moving forward, as really a, uh, a Trojan horse to put everything that's been settled according to Scripture uh, into flux. And it's a way of doctrinal change that's a bit, now I'm not attributing this to Sam, uh, but it's a bit dishonest. Rather than just coming forward and saying, look, I dislike chapter, paragraph here in the confession, or I think this, that this church or this association of churches should renegotiate or reconsider this point of the confession. You use this... Uh, essentially vague label and slogan to inject who knows what interpretation to the confession under the guise of will semper reformanda and if there is any historic precedent to the phrase going back into the 17th century and perhaps earlier it all refers to the need of the church ecclesiastically and practically to conform our lives to what we believe and we all know and readily admit that confessing the faith formally on paper is not the same as living consistently with it. Right. And we always, by the grace of God and the help of the Spirit, need to keep reforming, that is, reviving um, and, and growing in the truth of what we confess in our actual lives and that our heart and heads moves into our hands and our feet. Um, that's what that phrase meant, if it has any historic credence. We don't want to imbibe a real Bardian view of doctrinal flux right. and and essentially uh, a foundationless approach to theology. Well, I think that's one of the major elements for me that was confusing about what Sam wrote here. Um, I know Sam well enough to know that he cannot possibly, well, I'm assuming this, and I think it's the right motive to assume it from my brother who I esteem, they cannot possibly be uh, advocating uh, Bart. Now, I'm not saying by that, that it's not Bartian in the way he's approaching it. That's a different right. issue. But I know Sam would not be... No. He, he knows what we know uh, about right. Bart, right? So, right? so I think that well, that's where I find the confusion. I think it's unhelpful uh, to take an article like Bob Godfrey and, and, and use it the way he did um, and then basically argue for the very opposite. Um, look, you and I have discussed this. Uh, nobody's saying you can't revise a confession of faith. Nobody's saying you can't say, you know what, we no longer want to 
confess this, we want to confess that. Everybody's free to do that. But we're just be, we're actually pretty big we just have point. to be honest about that, right? right. And, and, and I happen to know that uh, Sam and some of the brothers in Grand Rapids years ago in 1989 did do a revision of the 1689, um, not any major doctrines. So there was nothing, it was mainly things like divorce and the charismatic element that maybe they felt they needed to strengthen. A, a legitimate attempt at strengthening phrases. We've had conversations about the whole issue of sexuality in our day and marriage and there's the confession, you know, bolted down, uh, bearing in mind where we're at in the history of the church. So uh, nobody's saying that. Right. Nobody is saying that you couldn't do that. And that was what was also peculiar. I don't know of any Reformed Baptist who would make that argument, right? Uh, but it's confusing to argue the way that Sam does here. And, and, and it seemed to me where I'm sitting that the larger issue behind the whole thing is because he moves on to this uh, to address guys like Matthew Barrett um, and Jordan Stefaniak uh, and, and, and then the Aquinas issue. And I, I wonder, and we'll deal with this in another podcast, that behind it all, in part, is a pressure regarding elements of the doctrine of God. Right. And that remains to be seen, right? But Sam makes it clear at the end he does not want to revise classical theism, which is great because right. we don't want that to happen. But that seems to me to be a, a, a press through the article that has driven the confusion, it seems to me, in the way Sam puts the argument together. And that, that seems to me to be a, also, I would agree, a, a legitimate um, assumption to make. And again, you're making a distinction then between a material and formal principle, and we're right. talking about the formal principle here, and that's what the article's the burden is, but it is worth wondering, well, are we really just sort of dancing around what is pressures on the material principle, that is, the doctrine of God being confessed in our confession and that we want to hold to with all of Christendom um, up until a couple centuries ago. And I think going back to, I, I want to linger just for another moment on the issue of confessional revision and be completely clear. We are Baptists. We're actually very big on the independence of the local church outside of an authoritative framework outside of it and the association of churches as well. And if any association of churches or local church wants to revise their confession, um, to make clearer their particular principles that they've come to in sincere conviction according to Scripture, they are absolutely free to do that. Right. They are free to encourage other churches to join them and see the same thing. And the irony, of course, is that's where our confession comes from. Uh, our framers, when they uh, wrote the Second London Confession, they had before them the First London Confession, of course, the Westminster Confession, of course, the Savoy uh, Statement, and along with other writings, and we essentially confess a confessional revision. And then, of course, down through uh, Baptist history, you have things like the Philadelphia Confession of 1742, which adopted the Second London Confession. And then the other major, even American Baptist confessions, the Abstract of Principles at Southern Seminary, are all derivative of the Second London Confession. It's not really until the 20th century in the Baptist faith and message in the SBC that you have a major or notable uh, doctrinal statement by Baptists that doesn't have some genetic tie back to the Second London. So I think it's apparent in our history. It should be obvious in the document itself, the Second London Confession, by the fact it's the second, that we believe and come from a stream that is completely affirming uh, the ability of doctrinal uh, revision, confessional amendment and revision, that's, uh, it's, it shouldn't need to be stated, but we need to state it and clarify that. We absolutely believe in the freedom of that and that the only rule of faith uh, and the final authority is Scripture. Right. Um, and when, when, when confession and Scripture collide, Scripture wins every time. Now, that's a, the different question, though, is whether there's a justifiable reason for revision and that really is, I think, what you're alluding to about the material principles is really, is that that remains to be seen at any certain quarter. We've talked, I know I've mentioned even, I'd love to see a standardized modern English edition of the Confession that many churches rally around for greater clarity moving into future generations. That's a whole other topic. But suffice to say, we don't hold to any wooden two-source tradition theory like Roman Catholicism that this is somehow binding, you should never touch it. 
No. The only thing written in ink is God's word. Everything else is written in pencil. Right. And so if we end up having a sacramental association and we do some revisions on the 1689, it will be known as the sacramental confession of 2026 or whatever. And uh, it will have a historical history and you can trace it out. Exactly. And we just walk in integrity and exactly. we walk in honesty that this is who we are. And if there are those that want to join with us, they would they would join with us. And if they don't, they would remain whatever their confessional standard happens to be. So that's where I think at that level, I was, again, perplexed by the the apparent belief that there are guys out there who think that somehow or another the 1689 confession is written in concrete stone and you can never touch it. No, but if the argument really is, you must understand it in its historical original intent. Well, that's a that's a given, surely. I mean, that's right. exactly how we should understand the confession. And if we don't agree with it, we just have to say that with right. integrity. That's really the issue, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's been one of the more troubling things in the wider discourse that's going on online and interpersonally is many of the same brothers who would seem to take great umbrage at the progressive liberal reading of the U.S. Constitution contrary to an originalist reading, which we would hold to in, in our personal politics as well, certainly, have a very different view ecclesiastically of the confession and seem, could be wrong, but it seems that they want to imbibe the progressive reading of the confession ecclesiastically, the very thing that in mm. the, our nation's uh, political discourse they would oppose with vehemence. I, I'm just bewildered at the inconsistency of approach to having a historic standard organize your community. Well, I think it's staggering for me. I mean, you, you know, you're an American, Steve, and you're much more educated in American you know, government and how it works. I've come into it having been a Brit, and I've studied it, you know, and I, I like to study it, and it fascinates me. I'm now an American citizen, but it has honestly shocked me that uh, something as simple as this would be missed. Uh, nobody in conservative circles that I'm aware of uh, reads their constitution that way, and yet they want to argue about the confession. Mystery to me. I don't understand that. I reject it. It's unacceptable, and I'm going to stand against it. And yeah. uh, I'm going to really call men to integrity at that level and say, brothers, it, it, maybe you're missing the, this or join, not joining the dots, but you can't take chapter two in our confession, for example, on the doctrine of God and import your own meaning onto it when you've got so much material resource-wise to show where that actually was formed from. You just can't do that. Nobody should be studying theology like that. Right. Nobody should be doing historical theology like that. That is not an acceptable methodology at all. That sets the church onto a sea of erratic subjectivity right. uh, that we see in our culture around us. Right. And we want to be a bulwark and a refuge and a, a place, firm place to stand for Christ's right. saints, um, not on this subjective uh, a journey that has no grounding or anchor. Um, and that's where push to consistency, and I'm not saying our brother Sam or others would hold to that, but with what they seem to be articulating, when pushed to consistency, that's exactly where it leads you, unmoored, unfastened, and adrift on a subjective sea to who knows where. Well, I've wondered maybe part of the benefit of living in California is that we're forced to drill down very hard and we're forced to really think through things very very clearly because we're actually right on the coalface with this progressive liberalism coming at us in the yeah. political sphere. I don't know. That remains to be seen. It's a theory that I have that I'm just thinking through. Whereas if you're in a state, a red state, where you know you can just basically assume certain things or you think you assume th certain things, you maybe just miss certain elements that you need to maybe step back and think, well, wait a minute, this is actually influencing us more than we realise. Right. Uh, I don't know. I, I, that's a concern that I have, and certainly moving forward it will play itself out, I'm pretty confident, one way or the other, you know. Well, uh, Sam's second concern is um, he doesn't cite, so to be clear, for those who haven't read the article, there's no citation of sources or, or attribution here. And, that, and I want to put the best motive on that. That may be just because he wants to deal with principles and not people. Yeah. And I, I commend that motive. Um, sometimes... I wish you had, though. <laughs> yeah, as we'll talk about, there's a reason for that. But he uh, quotes uh, 
the book review that Jordan Stefaniak did that was published at London Lyceum on Jeff Johnson's book, The Failure of Natural Theology. And suffice to say, it was a critical review, and justly so. Um, but Sam quotes it, and he quotes a section from, the, uh, from Jordan's review. It's section 3.1. And if we can grab the title here, The Problem of Natural Theology. And Sam, the section that Sam quotes is where um, Jordan cites our confession, chapter 1, paragraph 1, about Scripture being the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving faith and obedience. And Jordan points out the obvious, that it does not, Scripture is not sufficient for everything. And he uses the illustration of changing the oil uh, in his truck, and we, we would all understand that. Now, Sam takes that in a direction that, was odd, especially when you continue the quote. So let me read for us what Jordan goes on to say that is not cited in Sam's citation. Jordan goes on to say, it does not move the foundation from divine revelation to human reasoning. The theological task is not to merely parrot the words of scripture, but to quote, think God's thoughts after him and to trace their unity as Bobbing has said. In this same paragraph, uh, Jordan goes on to say, neither Thomas, referring to Thomas Aquinas, nor the Reformed, thought philosophy was superior to Scripture, but both found it necessary to come to a clearer understanding of it. Now, notice this last sentence in the paragraph. To be clear, this does not mean we need things outside of Scripture for, quote, saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. But if we want to both know and enjoy God to the maximum degree, we ought to utilize all the means God has given us in his good creation. Now, Jordan gives several qualifications here of what he doesn't mean. He is not elevating philosophy or human reason as superior to Scripture. He says very clearly he's not moving the foundation from divine revelation to human reasoning. So it's troubling that essentially the article says that he's doing just that. Well, either Sam didn't understand what Jordan said, or, uh, you know, he seems to say here, you know, he, Sam believes in good and necessary consequence or whatever, and that seems to me what Jordan's actually talking about. Right. And so it's like Sam ends up agreeing with Jordan, but disagreeing with Jordan, and that's why I'm confused. Yeah, it, it, it's bewildering, um, because uh, Sam goes on to articulate the very point that Jordan's trying to establish. Right. Yeah. Exactly, and that's why it was, and then to your point, you know, and I know you know Jordan, I don't know Jordan, but I love his, I love his London Lyceum, and if you don't listen to it, let me tell you, you should, because it's really superb. Um, I, I think that uh, Sam kind of argues in a circle there and comes back to actually agree with what Jordan said, and that was why I'm reading this going, this is bizarre. And stepping back methodologically, I was deeply concerned, and we'll get to another one that's just as egregious, deeply concerned about selective quotations um, and the implicit misrepresentation that's happening here. Now, Jordan's not being named, so it wasn't sort of a, a character assassination at that level, to be clear. However, you're raising a concern that when you read it in the full context and just read the whole paragraph, it's not really a concern, and it's not really the stated concern, it, it's almost like fabricating an enemy. Well, it's a little, I mean, Sam opens himself up here, in my opinion, to basically uh, the straw man accusation. You know, um, Jordan's a real person. We know where the quotes come from. We've put it back in its context. We've established clearly that Sam doesn't really represent it accurately, though he comes around to agree with him. Mystifying methodology. I, I don't understand why Sam did that. Um, I think that he does open himself up for a legitimate critique, and I think you know that's that's fair um, and, and, a, and a spirit of humility and grace and love for Sam. Um, and really, at the end of the day, again, doesn't establish his concern. No. Why do we do, do we believe in sola scriptura? It's like eh, eh, this one's not a valid concern either. No, it's not a valid concern. And and in any of our engagement of polemics and when we're trying to raise concerns, we have to at least treat our opponents fairly right. and clearly and get to the actual rub of the issue. 
not use selective citations and quotations to try to make our point. And in the end, what you gain in the short term, you lose in the long term because eventually people like us will just use the magic of Google. They'll find out who you've quoted. They'll realize you actually misquoted them. And now your actual questions about your credibility are being raised and the credibility of your position entirely if you have to engage in these kind of tactics. Well, I think that's what stuns me because of my esteem for Sam. I'm like, did Sam actually do this? <laughs> did somebody write this for Sam and did he add his name to it? I don't know. It, it stuns me. It really does because that one is clearly wrong. Yeah. Um, but the next one's worse. Yeah, in agree. my opinion. I agree. I think the next one is actually worse. What he does with Matthew Varrett's book on Simply Trinity and how he misquotes Matthew was, is seriously disappointing to me. Yeah, that, this was the first one we actually discovered in, its, um, in Sam's article called The Third Troubling Statement. And let me read it the way it's cited in that article. So uh, Sam says, In my recent reading, I came across another statement from a Reformed brother that worried me. Here it is, and here's the quote. To depart from the creed is to depart from scriptural teaching itself. Heresy is a belief that contradicts, denies, or undermines a doctrine that an ecumenical church council has declared biblical and essential to Christianity. What makes heresy so subtle and dangerous? It is nurtured within the church and is wrapped within Christian vocabulary. Its representatives even quote the Bible. It often presents itself as the whole truth when it is a half-truth. Now, that citation, and again, um, the... the the source is not cited in the article itself, but that actually comes from Matthew Barrett's excellent book that we recommend, Simply Trinity, and it's a very helpful articulation on the historic understanding of our triune God. And the, the part of the uh, book that Sam is citing here is on page 66 of, uh, of Simply Trinity, and let me read the, what precedes what is cited here. Uh, here, Matthew Barrett writes, That said... The Nicene Creed is not a dead letter. Rather, it carries authority to this day. No, it is not on par with Scripture. It is not a source of divine revelation. But since it conforms to Scripture, it is to be adhered to, confessed, and celebrated in the church to this day. That's a very important qualification that was conveniently ignored and not cited in the quotation. Well, it's at that very point that he goes on to make the statement to depart from the creed is to depart from scriptural teaching itself. And Sam doesn't give us the previous part, which qualifies exactly what Matthew meant when he was writing that. And Sam actually makes it seem like he meant the opposite. Right. And I think that that is terrible. Yeah, that's, it's really just not becoming of a Christian or... A, we can't do that, Steve. Yeah. You just can't do that. I mean, if we're going to have credibility in our debates, and we, you know, I want to make sure we, we represent clearly what our brother is saying and figure out where I respond to that. And uh, this particular third troubling statement is the most, for me, the most disappointing, seriously wrong uh, one that we have. And we haven't, we, you know, we haven't gone light on the other ones. But you just can't do that. The methodological approach to this, the issue of misquoting and misrepresenting, we don't do ourselves any favours in the realm of discussion, debate, fellowship when we do this. No. I think, I think it's safe to say, just being honest, that when you and I both discovered um, this misrepresentation of Matthew Barrett, our hearts both sunk and oh, it just sort of so. uh, disappointment and discouragement that the discourse seems to have sunk to this level right. uh, where we're intentionally, well, I shouldn't say that, where we are, I don't know what the intention is, but when we are misrepresenting and selectively citing someone uh, to make the position be what, what it's not. Uh, Matthew Barrett, whatever you think of his construal of the ecumenical councils, and I'm, I'm, I freely admit we're open to discuss that, but whatever you make of that, um, suggesting that he's somehow removing Scripture as the, the only source of divine revelation that he says very clearly in the sentence right before it um, to remove that is, uh, it's just, it's not fair dealing. It's not walking right. in, in my opinion, it's not walking in integrity. Right. And so I think, again, we go, uh, uh, Sam, this is not legitimate to be concerned about Sola Scriptura on the base of Matthew Barrett's book and his statements, I think, is not true. No. Matthew Barrett's not departing. It seems from where we're reading, uh, and I've read other stuff of Matthew, that uh, he's not departing from the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, nor encouraging it, nor even going even close to it. 
No. And, and, and to maybe, this might be oversimplifying, but to, to illustrate the point, Barrett is essentially saying that the, the, our creeds and confessions function with the same authority that, again, you and I as preachers would say our sermons function to the extent that I am accurately and faithfully communicating the word of God to the church that's the authority of God's word. Right, that um, is the word of God. It's the word of God. Even though we remember the Second Helvetic Confession, that wonderful statement, right. the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Right. And it goes on to qualify, right. of course, of what course. that means, those lawfully called and being faithful to God's word. So the, we all agree with this principle. If we didn't, all we would do is get into a pulpit and read the Bible and sit down and not say a word. Or all we would ever do is read scripture to one another and have nothing written down. Right. Um, but since we all believe that we should do that, since we're writing even articles to clarify what we believe scripture would call us to, um, going drawing swords over believing there are subordinate standards that have some measure of authority in a particular communion, church, or association of churches, uh, it's illogical, it's inconsistent, it's, it's an incoherent position. Right, and what, what's, again, my history with Sam and his, his, his blessing on my life is I'm reading this going, that's not what Sam, I, I don't know what I thought I learned from Sam <laughs> 25, 30 years ago. I, I thought that Sam would agree that if the sermon or if the construction of the systematic theology that we're putting together is accurate according to the Word of God, then it is the Word of God without qualification. And uh, that was what was stunning for me when I read through this. I was like, wait a minute, because I've read Matthew Barrett's stuff. And, and then we checked it. And then we went, oh, that's a large gaping hole yeah. that you really missed, Sam. And, yeah. you're, you know, I, think I would just say, brother, you know, go back and check it because I think you got this one badly wrong. Yeah, it's a straw man that they're right. easy to light, but they don't really help uh, further right. and, and, and right. edify the church. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then we come on to the, the bogeyman in the room. Full Tom. Yeah, and I'll be honest, uh, you know, I freely admit as a Protestant that I've not really been a big Thomas Aquinas guy over many years, right? Not the guy, I don't have too many Thomas Aquinas books on my shelf, right? Uh, I was introduced at a deeper level to Thomas Aquinas in my THM class with Dr. Neely at PRTS when we were comparing catechisms, when we did the Heidelberg Catechism, and he gave us, you know, uh, the responsibility to print off Thomas Aquinas's catechism. And I'm thinking, Thomas Aquinas, that Romanist. Right. But I read it, and I was, I, was, I, was, I was reminded again of why when I was back at Queen's University in Belfast, doing my degree and reading Calvin and these guys, Aquinas would pop up from time to time, right? I didn't pay much attention, Steve, when I was in my early 20s. Um, so then I thought, oh, this is interesting, that Aquinas' structure for his catechism is pretty much embraced by the Reformation <laughs> with, of course, the Reformation adjustments, right. right? But there is a continuity. Right? And this is what really baffles me that guys don't seem to understand. Now, I understand if you haven't done a lot of reading and you haven't done a lot of studying, you may not get it, right? But once you start reading, right, and start studying, you can't miss it. No. I don't think you can miss it anyway. But here's what Michael Haken, our good brother, and a good Baptist brother who I like to hide behind, uh, you know, he, he told us, he warns us very carefully on his, on his blog post, on his Facebook post, to be careful that Thomas Aquinas is someone that you need to take time to read and understand, and you won't just get it all at once. And if you're going to start quoting what other people say about Aquinas, you might get it wrong because they might have got Aquinas wrong. And that, for me, is a caution right there. Now, right. I'm sure Sam has read Aquinas at a level I have not read Aquinas. I'm willing to concede that without any problem. But here's an interesting little book that I really bought because I'm thinking, what is going on with this guy, Thomas Aquinas? Uh, Aquinas Among the Protestants. I like the title. It's an interesting title. Uh, David Van Druen, right, who a guy I, I highly esteem from, um, from Westminster. Uh, he writes this very early in the book, by the way, uh, regarding Aquinas. Um, he says, regarding the whole fact that you know, some people will say you know, Aquinas is bad, don't have anything to do with him, right? Others will argue, you know, Aquinas actually is helpful. Um, where he's helpful, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you leave him off where you leave him off, right? Which is actually, you and I were talking about our good hero, William Ames, right? right? Uh, you know, Ames, one of the great forerunners of the, the Baptists in England, uh, had no problem reading and benefiting from Thomas Aquinas. No, and I think what Williams Ames, what Williams Ames said is so helpful in just synthesizing 
the point and the point that we would have even as pastors um, and John Usden makes this comment in his biographical and theological introduction to the reprint of William Ames' Marrow of Theology. And he makes the point that Ames says that from the authors like Thomas Aquinas, his Roman Catholic authors, he obviously had controversy with them and he debated them, but also that they had, quote, veins of silver from which I suppose I've taken some things not to be despised. And so Ames says that there's silver to mine even in Aquinas. But then he goes on to say, very importantly, that he was not of their inner spirit. And I think we would all say that. I have zero interest, honestly, in Thomas Aquinas. We have, I have quoted him in sermons a total of zero times. Um, we I can have, verify that because I sit under your ministry. We have, <laughs> uh, we have a grand total of zero small groups that are reading the Summa currently. Um, and if one was proposed, I would have issue with it. But we cannot deny that he, along with other medieval theologians, and going back into the early church, form precedent in our theological framework that the framers moving down to where it, where it reaches brass tacks for us, the Second London Confession, used from, understood, cited. And the current approach to Aquinas today that sort of it's all or nothing, that pointing out his obvious errors that we would uh, understand in the doctrines of salvation. That our confession clearly exposes. Denies our confession is not um, uh, silent about Roman Catholicism. I always laugh when I've been accused of being in danger of swimming the Tiber, and I'm wanting to hold to a confession that calls the Pope the Antichrist. I don't think they want me on the other side of the Tiber because I want to pull the papacy down and all of its false uh, teaching. Uh, But... If you take this approach consistently, you at the end of the day have to throw out everyone except maybe your pastors. Um, We have to throw out Augustine. As Warfield said, the Reformation in some ways was Augustine versus Augustine. And there's things in Augustine that uh, the Reformers rightly um, pointed to. And there's things that you get to Augustine on baptism, and we as Baptists want nothing to do with that. And the same thing with Martin Luther was no Reformed Baptist. But we stand with him in the doctrine of justification, certainly, and we are Lutheran in that way. But there are other things Luther said that I would distance myself from by a mile. And on and on and on, you get to uh, even John Calvin and others. So this kind of approach to uh, what you could call really a genetic fallacy, that because somebody gets something wrong, everything they say is wrong, or they're a paradigm of error, really it puts you on a very small island. Well, I think this is part of my concern is the methodological approach, right, to historical theology, right? And and again, this is where I'm baffled because Sam was a significant influence in my early years, in my 20s. Uh, I've gone through all of Sam's lectures on historical theology from way back, right? I I, I used to take notes on the videos, right, and look up stuff that I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, uh, so, so... you know, Aquinas gets some things wrong, so that means he's completely unreliable in absolutely everything he ever taught. Well, if that's the case, then I'm going to do that with Calvin, I'm going to do that with Luther, I'm going to do that with Steve Meister, I'm going to do that with Sam Waldron, I'm going to do that, you know, with myself. I mean, that this doesn't make sense, right? Let me read this. And I think this is important for guys who might listen to this outside of our own church, but guys that are in our church. Uh, and it's only the second page of Van Drunen's introduction. Right? So this is Van Drunen. This is Van Drunen on the Aquinas among the Protestants. And he says this. And I, again, you know, you have to do the research. It's not easy to establish how criticism of Aquinas emerged among the Protestants, right? So he's, he's making it clear that when you study in history and research, it's difficult work, right? It's complicated. Right, it's complicated. With the exception of Luther, most early Protestant critics of his thought seem to have been rather marginal authors. That's an interesting point. And then he quotes uh, a, a couple of books. Then he says this, The lack of an um, unambiguous evaluation of Aquinas in the 16th century is quite understandable. For one thing, the fact that Aquinas is and was commonly perceived to be the preeminent Roman Catholic theologian creates an interesting dynamic that can play out in two opposite directions. On the one hand, it can create the general perception that Aquinas is Protestantism's chief adversary which is what some people obviously think. On the other, when Aquinas and Protestant thinkers share similar views, it can point to Aquinas as a significant witness, and I think this is important, to the Catholicity of Reformation insights. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is an issue that we need to work through because we can either be sectarian, 
yes. or Catholic. Right. And I lived in, in Northern Ireland, Steve, as you know, and I know what sectarianism looks like, right? And I think that I wonder if part of our problem as Reformed Baptists is that we're now coming to uh, appreciate the Catholicity of our forefathers mm. when we actually didn't understand it coming out of fundamentalism and coming out of the yep. sectarianism. Yep. And now we're in a sense fighting a battle or we're facing a battle. Maybe not, we maybe are fighting it, but we're facing a battle now to challenge us as to are we truly Catholics, not Romanists. We're no. definitely not Romanists, right. but are we Catholics? And I think that in this day and age in which we're fighting a battle against the progressive liberalism of our culture and the degeneration of our culture, the rediscovering of our Catholicity is challenging us. Uh, it's challenging some of our presuppositions. It's challenging some of our discomforts. It may even be exposing our proclivities to sectarianism and our proclivities to separate separatism that really we need to repent of yeah. and we need to address. I don't know for sure, but that's what I'm looking at. That's what I'm concerned about. Um, I am a reformed Catholic or a Catholic Reformed Baptist, or whatever way you want to put it. And there are right. books out there with these titles on them because right. guys are discovering the right. great depth of our confession and its unity with the past, its right. Catholicity. And I think that we want to sound that note loud and clear from Sacramento without any apology. Yes. And challenge our brothers, whom we love, to think more deeply about this. Consider this, brothers. It has significant implications for the next generation, should the Lord tarry. It's massive, and sometimes the vibes put it, the question is not whether or not we want to stay in London, the question is whether we want to stay in Jerusalem, and whether or not we want to stay within Christendom, and what Christians have believed and confessed according to Scripture for centuries, and we definitely want to do that. You know, as we, uh, when we do our new members classes, that when we introduce the confession, one of the things that we do is we put it on sort of a, a graph for people, all the chapters, and we categorize each section of the confession, and we try to emphasize that at the front is just Christianity, right. and especially chapters 1 to 8. Right. This is what Christians have believed for centuries. Must believe. And what they must believe. Now, we are not ashamed of being Baptists at all. In fact, I would argue that I'm a Baptist in order to be a Orthodox Christian because I do believe that, according to Scripture, Baptist convictions are the best means of preserving orthodoxy. But we Amen. must not ever think that we are some, as Baptists, some schismatic approach that has a different take on the person of Christ, the doctrine of God, um, and these fundamental matters that it, once you touch and pull on those thread, you will undo everything related to the gospel. It's not insignificant for the fact that the Second London Confession, confession uh, embraces the Nicene Creed in chapter 2. We embrace the wording of Chalcedon, the definition of Chalcedon in chapter 8. Our framers were forthright in embracing um, Catholic small c Christianity. And the great burden in the Reformation uh, was not to start a, a new Christianity. It was actually to try to recover the one that had gone far astray by Rome. And sometimes I'll, I'll say, and, and of course Roman Catholics uh, don't appreciate this, but one of the most um, uh, ironic and oxymoronic statements in the world is Roman Catholicism. Right. You cannot be universal if you're tied to a culture and a city and a tradition in Rome. And that was essentially the argument of the reformers. It was not to, let's start everything from scratch. Let's recover what has been lost and encumbered under unbiblical tradition. And we're wanting to hold the same to this day. And so that's where we understand, of course, we have historic precedents. There would be a problem if our faith fell out of the sky last Tuesday and we are just uh, reinventing novel things. Uh, scripture warns us about those who do so and aren't passing on, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, that form of sound words from one generation to another. Right. And I think if the truth be told, and if we were all being honest, those of us who are, you know, a little bit longer in the tooth in the Reformed Baptist world, most of us came out of fundamentalism, uh, separatist context. We didn't even necessarily have a doctrine of Catholicity at the time. Um, we're introduced to our confession. Um, we embrace it as best we understand it, but we haven't fully comprehended it all. And now we get opened up to uh, the history of the church. We get opened up to the issue of continuity, discontinuity, Catholicity, the place of our confession. And I do believe that here we are, I think that there are some, maybe some brothers are fearful uh, that, you know, they haven't thought it through. Maybe what we've found here in Sacramento, for what, you know, 
context is that we're very secure in our Reformed Baptist uh, convictions here, uh, and we're also very Catholic in our spirit with our pastors fraternal, with our sacramental gospel conference. I attribute some of that by the grace of God to the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology that we had years ago mm. that brought me into contact even with some of our Presbyterian brothers who are Reformed who also have a maybe a stronger grasp in some quarters of Catholicity. And I think that we want to make that the message for our congregation. Look, when we introduced into our church a greater Catholicity in our city, we introduced into our church a greater spiritual health to our congregation. Yes. And we want to maintain that uh, with our distinctiveness, yes, but with our Catholicity of heart. And I would just want to encourage anybody who listened to this that we don't have to fear that being a Catholic, a true historical Catholic Christian, uh, moves you away from sola scriptura. Right. It doesn't. Not it actually keeps you firmly committed to it because we're talking about the continuity of the Reformation and the continuity of our confession out of the Protestant Reformation, which was clearly, to your point, uh, a desire to maintain Catholicity of heart and faithfulness to the true gospel right. of Jesus Christ, which Rome had definitely lost. Absolutely. And it is something that we try to promote and articulate here among us, is that one of the great fruit fruits of having holding to our confession is the ability for us to be have a Catholic spirit towards others because we have what we believe set out in paper and established. And we can compare what we confess according to Scripture with um, someone else, and we can see all the ways we agree, which will then establish all the ways we can cooperate. Correct. Now, and for many of our brothers, we will never plant a church together because we differ on some very important things. But we can do evangelism together. We can do conference together. We can pray for each other and hope one another prospers. Support the local anti-abortion anti -abortion, exactly. clinic or whatever. Yeah, you the know. Union Gospel Mission and so yes. on. We're happy to cooperate in all of these things, and our confession enables us. Right. When you remove the confession or when what you mean by the confession is hid behind slogans like Semper Reformanda or other things that we're not quite sure you're talking about, it actually puts obstacles in the way of unity. Because now I don't know what you mean by Scripture's teaching. And I'm not quite sure we're on the same page. And so now it injects a suspicion. It injects distance. Um, it injects um, really even division within uh, informal and formal associations of churches so that cooperation then becomes uh, very, very difficult to maintain because our, our honest principles are not really being put on the table and, and you're not really telling me what you actually believe. And so then, then there's all sorts of questions to get raised from it. A uh, originalist, full-throated uh, uh, confession of faith aids the unity of the church, Amen. both locally and in relationship and interdependence with other churches. It aids our cooperation um, it, because even the areas we differ are then being set out among us and we can clearly draw from those lines. I just can't uh, say that strongly enough that um, having an honest um, confession, what we mean by what we say, scripture teaches, helps us, especially in the day that we're in. And I, I think even your earlier comment about perhaps we're, we're even being aided in this by being in California and things are difficult and there's no, um, there's no hiding who's a Christian and who's not here. And people are not Christians here on purpose and people then are Christians on purpose. And that forces us then to really think, what are those first principles that we're going to die on? What are those things that we maybe, if we'll see how things go, you and I are going to go to jail for? And how do we understand them? And then also looking at one another in the other churches, where do we agree and where do we disagree? Because we need each other. The, the thing is, is that over splitting hairs and division is really a privilege of peace. And that when the church is under assault, as we are here daily, um, we actually have to really decide, okay, what are we really dividing over and what are we not? Because we need each other to the extent that we can cooperate. And I'm so thankful in the Sacramento's Pastors Fellowship, we cooperate and love so many brothers. We'll have, it's become a tradition among us that in our evening services in the summer, we have pastors from other churches preach for us and we pray for their churches. And we're not hiding our differences. And you know, when we get together, we like to sometimes poke the bear at, at, at our friends just in a, in a brotherly way. Uh, but it is really important to maintain the communion of the saints that our confession speaks of among us. 
Right, and I think the next time we have our podcast, I think that's where we can open up a little bit more why some of these foundational settled doctrines of the church have to remain settled and cannot be tampered with. Um, and where there are other elements that we recognize, you may have a, a difference of emphasis or understanding. Um, you know, we have to work that element out as well. But the foundation of what the church has hammered out over the centuries, if we're truly Catholic in that sense, uh, we have to uphold and we have to defend and we have to protect because to do to do otherwise is to start taking a sledgehammer to our foundations and destroy right. everything. Right. And again, we're not at all saying that any creed or confession has greater authority than Scripture. Right. What we are saying is it has greater authority than you and I or any other individual interpreter of Scripture. And um, Scripture would lead us to say so because we are being brought into something bigger than you and I and the church of Christ that he is building and he has promised will have success. And so we, it behooves us in humility and in love to receive what's been passed down to us, frankly, from bloodied hands of martyrs that have gone before and that we hold fast the same faith today. Yeah, and so as we close out, you know, we've, we've walked through Sam's article. We've used it as the basis for our discussion today. Our heart for Sam, we love Sam. We esteem Sam. Um, as I say, I just hope that if, if he ever does listen to this, that he might give reflection to what we've said. We know that we see it in love and, and grace, and we, we appreciate him, um, but recognize that we do need to do better in our methodology. We do need to do better in our uh, engaging with brothers, um, and we need to just walk with clarity so that the church who's looking to us uh, will not be confused uh, at best and led astray at worst. Yeah, absolutely. We do hope that this conversation is going to help uh, everyone who listens, primarily our church and, and anyone else. And we hope it furthers our discussion to, to clearly lay out uh, where we uh, agree together and where we differ. And the differences don't have to be undertaken with acrimony. They can be undertaken as Christians. Right. And we can just honestly set out we diff where we differ and then go with where those differences lead us. Amen. Yeah, amen. Thanks, brother. Thanks for talking.